Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, pour out the now of your Holy Spirit upon me, the preacher of your word. Give me confidence in the word of God this morning so that it might be proclaimed with great boldness and clarity. Uh, speak a word through me so that your people might be built up, our hearts encouraged, our lives transformed by the renewing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, raised, and ascended. Lord, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would come upon all of us. Let us know that we've heard a word from you today as we've heard the message from the scriptures. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, if you were listening closely to the gospel reading from Luke this morning, you might have thought to yourself that passage of scripture might suit the season of Lent, you know, where we talk about the cost of discipleship much more than it suits the season after Pentecost in which we find ourselves today. But you know, the message of the cross, Jesus speaks of the cross. He's talking about going to Jerusalem. And just before this passage, let me read you that verse in verse uh, 22, chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus says, the Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's clearly setting his face to go to Jerusalem, to go to the cross. And along the way, there is this talk of the cost of discipleship. Along with the cross and what's about to happen in Jerusalem, there's this talk about the cross of, uh, or the cost of discipleship. And, you know, even though it, it sounds a little bit about like Lent, it's actually perennially applicable. That's the heart of discipleship. There is a great cost to following Jesus, but there's also a great reward. And I, I love the psalm we, we offered up this morning, Psalm 16. At your right, in your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or as it says in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I've come, this is John 10, 10. I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So we know there's joy and pleasure and life in following Jesus Christ, but there is also great cost in following Jesus Christ. And our Lord was never shy about telling his followers that you will have eternal life, but you will also pay a dear price for following me. Luke is very careful to let us know that this is about to happen, that the cross is about to happen as Jesus journeys. And by the way, that passage in uh, John 9, verse 51, begins what we call the travel narrative. For nine chapters following these verses, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, and all of his interactions and teachings have that as the context and the background. He is teaching in the context of going to offer himself completely for us in, devo in devotion to the Father's will to redeem us and to save us. And Luke is careful to let us know that that's indeed what is about to happen. When the days, this is uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the first verse, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that word taken up or lifted up means hoisted high upon a cross. It also connotes being raised from the dead, and it certainly refers to being taken up in triumph at his ascension. All of, the, all of these things are alluded to into that little phrase, taken up. So that journey to Jerusalem is going to culminate with his mission to redeem humanity through that great act of self-sacrificing love. Now here is the theme that binds kind of a disjointed passage. We have 
the bits about the rejection of Jesus by the Samaritans, and then we have those three short vignettes of Jesus talking about the cost of following him. But these all are bound together, and here's how they're bound together. They're bound together by this. Jesus is going, it's going to cost Jesus everything to save us, but you and I are loved so much he deems it worth it, okay? We are worth it to Jesus. He's going to pay the highest possible price, but you are worth it in God's great love. And the reverse of that is also true. So if that's how God has loved us, when he calls us into following him, when he calls us into discipleship, he's, he says this, you are going to pay a price, there is a cost to follow me, but I am worth it. I am worth it. And that's what I want us to come away with this morning as we hear this passage expounded that there is a cost to following Jesus, but he is worth it. He is the all-surpassing treasure that we desire. All of that in your, in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hands, at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore are in, embodied, incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. So Luke says at the beginning of this passage that Jesus set his face. He set his face. That's a Hebraic expression. It means single-minded determination. He is making up his mind. He's a man on a mission at this point, and he will not allow anything to distract him from fulfilling that mission, single-minded devotion. He has single-minded devotion to complete the Father's purpose for him, and he calls his disciples likewise into a similar single-minded devotion. He expects that of us. And the first distraction that he encounters on the way to Jerusalem is that of opposition and rejection by a Samaritan village. Now, you probably know that the Samaritans and Jews had an ancient feud going on for 500 years at this point. The Samaritans rejected that Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem were the centers of the worship of the God of Israel, of Yahweh. And so when they heard that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem, they saw that as him preferring the claims of Orthodox Judaism over the claims of the Samaritans, and they said, no, you don't need to come here. You just go on your way, don't even stop. And of course, in response to this slight, James and John, Boadrones, sons of thunder, said, do you want us to call down fire out of heaven? Would you like us to call down fire out of heaven? Do you remember Jesus in 2 Kings chapter 1 where, where Elijah called down fire out of heaven? We could do that if you want us to. Now, if it had been me, I would have said, why, yes, yes, I think I would like for you to call down fire out of heaven off of these ungrateful, ungrateful people here in Samaria. But Jesus instead rebukes them. It's not, his response is not one of getting entangled in this distraction. You know, God's judgment will come to those who reject Christ, but the time and mode of that judgment is not in our hands. It's not our business. Rather, and this is the point, listen, Jesus is not going to let rejection and opposition distract him from the mission. He's not going to waste time arguing with the Samaritans about why Jerusalem plays a central role in God's plan of salvation. He's not going to try to convince them about the error of their ways. He's not even going to tarry for God's judgment to come on those that reject him. That's not the mission. He is modeling exactly, he's modeling for the disciples exactly what he instructs them to do when he sends out the 72 
in Luke chapter 10, he is modeling that for them in this moment. Jesus tells those disciples in the very next chapter, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. That singleness of mind, that, that, that singleness of determination is, about, is what it means to be on mission with Jesus Christ. And you should know that Christ's church, this church, has understood itself as being on mission with Jesus since our inception, really in 2007, in our first services in 2008. All that time, we have seen ourselves as being on mission. We had a little phrase. We had a little phrase, a little slogan at Christ Church, part of our mission. We, we went around saying, you know, we are a church that plants churches. We, we said, yeah, that's, that kind of describes us. But, you know, this week as I was praying and thinking, uh, the Lord put on my heart, even though we are still a church that plants churches, <clears throat> he put on, a, I think he put on my heart a clarifying word of the unfolding mission here at Christ Church. And so we're not just a church that plants churches. Listen, brothers and sisters, and maybe we could make this one of our mottos. Christ Church is a sending church. Christ Church is a sending church. We have sent out a remarkable number of church plants and church planters for a congregation our size. But in this season at Christ Church, by God's providence and his grace, we are sending out a remarkable number of missionaries for a church our size. And look, they came back. <laughs> but they're going back out again. We send out from this church so much life for the life of the world. And you know what? If, you, if you're not careful, it can happen to you. It's happening to me and Lisa again. We are a sending church. You know, we have another slogan at Christ Church, and this continues to be true. At Christ Church, we give our best away. We give our best away. And God, because we're willing to do that, because we're willing to pay that price, we see God's blessing over and over and over again in our church, abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. We're not going to compromise on this point of being a sending church. We're not going to get drawn into a discussion about changing our focus because it's the mission that we have been given and the eternal state, the eternal destiny of men and women and boys and girls are at stake. You know, being a sending church, and this, con this connects with that idea of paying a price. Count the cost to follow Jesus. Being a sending church will not be comfortable, but we, will, we won't be comfortable, but if we are in mission, we will be with Jesus. We won't be comfortable, but we will be with Jesus on mission, and he is worth it. I remember hearing one young Iraqi Christian woman saying, she, living, she still lives in the Middle East, she says, when you've lost everything for Jesus, you realize that Jesus is all that you have left. And he is everything. When you've lost everything, you realize that Jesus is all you have left, and he is everything. So to follow Jesus is to be struck with the radical nature of discipleship. There's eternal glory. Yes, there's eternal glory waiting for us in the future. There's great joy in the present. At his right hand, there's fullness of joy. But there is a tremendous cost to following Jesus Christ, and we need... <laughs> 
you know, uh, we, we love a bargain. You know, we, we love a good deal. We, we want value for our money. I love that, but that's, there's not a bargain. Here's, here's the deal. It costs everything, but it's worth it. There's a tremendous cost, but it is worth it. And that cost is going up in the West every day. Luke gives us, like I said, those three rapid-fire vignettes, little stories of cost, the cost of discipleship. Following Jesus, the first one is following Jesus means surrendering our comfort and security in earthly things for security in Christ Jesus. Surrendering our comfort and security in things that are earthly for the eternal things that we have received in Christ. Jesus said this, or the scripture says this in Luke chapter 9, verse 57. <clears throat> and as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, speaking as a hobbit, I find that very intimidating. I like my hobbit hole. I like my hobbit recliner. I like my little hobbit garden. I like my Hobbit Wi-Fi. We do have that in our Hobbit hole. I like my Hobbit Amazon Prime. I like my comfort. And to think that it may cost me those things can be very intimidating. You know, given the growing hostility against traditional Christian beliefs and practices in our culture, following Jesus is already coming at a higher cost. You know, I genuinely have to ask myself as a traditional presbyter, a presbyter, a priest, committed to orthodox Christian teaching and practicing, practices, what if that loyalty should mean I have to go to jail? I'm haunted by the words of the late Cardinal Francis George. I expect to die in my bed. My successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. His successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has always done so often in human history. So let me ask you, disciple, are you willing to pay the price of comfort and security to follow Jesus? Let me assure you, if you do, he is worth it. He is worth it. Following Jesus also, though, in this passage, and it's interesting that, in fact, there's two back-to-back -back events that speak sort of to the same same cost of discipleship, and I think the Holy Spirit is making a point here. In verse 59, the scripture says, To another Jesus said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You know, that's a shocking statement for any Jewish rabbi to make. In Judaism, the burial of the dead is among the highest obligations of a family member. But Jesus says being a disciple means that even our family obligations and relationships come second to loyalty with Jesus Christ. So that means that for all of us who have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ and united to him in baptism, this is what this means for you and for me, okay? It means that this is, this is hard. But it means that the church, the household of God, becomes our first family. These are the people, as I've said before, that you are stuck with forever. 
You're stuck with each other forever. This is your first family. The family of our birth becomes our second family. One Reformed theologian says it like this. He says, in the household of God, there is a relativizing of bloodlines. In the household of God, there's a relativizing of bloodlines. Our promises in baptism as parents and as a congregation signal that what counts as family is not just the closed nuclear unit that is so often idolized as the family. Thus, if Christian congregations are truly going to live out of and into the significance of baptism, they will need to become communities in which bloodlines of kin, bloodlines of kin are trumped by the blood of Christ. Where natural families don't fold into themselves in self-regard. Instead, the church constitutes our first family. And then right after that encounter and saying, Jesus says that following him means that we can't have a divided heart. We can't have a divided heart. Listen to what it says in Luke 9, verse 61, if you're following along. Luke 9, 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. Listen to how he says this. I will follow you, Lord, but... I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to, my, to those who are at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So let me ask you this. Is loyalty to your family, is the approval of your family, the desire to avoid conflict with your family, holding you hostage in your discipleship. I, I've seen this. In fact, I think I've seen it more recently. <clears throat> I don't know if it's an artifact of the last two years or, or it's just something that's emerging or maybe I'm just becoming more aware of it, but I see this happening all the time. So let me ask you, if your parent, listen, if your parent or your child or your spouse doesn't want to follow Jesus, are you still going to be faithful? Is Jesus your treasure? I don't go to church because my spouse doesn't want to go to church. That's not an option for us. Is Jesus worth it? Now, if you're like me, hearing these, this, the radical nature of following Jesus is, is very intimidating. But I want you to hear this. Please listen. This is so important. Yes, there is a cost to following Jesus, but beloved, and I've been, I've been a Christian now longer than I've been alive, it seems like it, he is worth it. Jesus is worth the cost. You know, he tells his disciples later as he moves along that journey to, to Jerusalem in Luke <coughs> chapter 18, verses 29 and 30, he turns to his disciples, he says to them, Truly I say to you, listen to this. He says, it's worth it. There is no one who has left house, house, hobbit hole, or wife, or brother, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. He is saying that he is worth the cost. I loved you so much, I was willing to pay the price for you, and you are worth it, Jesus says to us. And he says, and if you will come after me and follow me, you must love me so much 
that even though there is a cost of following, you find me worth it because of your love for me. He is saying that you may give up everything, but you cannot outgive God. Please hear that. No matter what cost our discipleship demands of us, it, we cannot outgive God. His reward far outweighs the cost. 2 Corinthians 4.17. Paul says something very much like this. 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. This cost in this moment is preparing for us. In other words, this is what it's doing. Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Part of the reason we have difficulty, please listen, we have difficulty in discipleship is this, is that we don't really believe that there is an eternal weight of glory being prepared for us. We are so locked into the present moment, our cares and concerns, uh, the, the overwhelming noise of living in this moment in our lives, that we don't see and perceive the reality of future reward in heaven with Jesus Christ. It's very unreal to us. But Paul says it far outweighs. It's beyond all comparison. No matter what the suffering, Jesus is worth the cost. No matter what we give away, Jesus is worth the cost. Nothing can compare with what we gain with Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you, do you guys remember, if I said the name Pastor Andrew Brunson, would you remember that? It's not been that long ago. But you may, you may remember that um, there was a coup, or an attempted coup in, in Turkey uh, uh, against President Erdogan of Turkey back around 19, uh, 19, about 2016, 2016. And they used that coup attempt as an opportunity to falsely accuse and imprison Pastor Andrew Brunson. He had absolutely nothing to do with that, but he was a Christian missionary serving and a pastor serving in Turkey. He's an uh, evangelical Presbyterian church pastor. <clears throat> they falsely accused him and they imprisoned him, the Turkish government did, from 2016 to 2018. Now, it's interesting, and I, I hope, and I'll actually send you some resources this week so that you can listen more to Pastor Brunson's story and what he learned about following Jesus in that time, but he said that he had no sense. This is so unusual. We're always used to hearing those amazing stories of how the confessors and martyrs of the church just, I mean, it's just like a, a Jesus holiday for them. You know, uh, I read Pastor Wormbrand, Tortured for Christ, and we hear about, oh, he just had visions and consolations and all kinds of good things, and I'm thrilled that that happened. But Pastor Brunson said he had no sense of the presence of God in his two years of captivity. He said all he experienced was the silence of God. He was physically, emotionally, and spiritually broken by the persecution. He says, in his words, he came close to being knocked out, knocked out. That is about as close as a Reformed uh, pastor can come to saying losing his salvation. He wouldn't say that, but he came close to being knocked out of renouncing Christ. He said that the first year in that Turkish prison was one of being broken and torn down. The second year, while he still had no sense of God's presence, he said was a year of being rebuilt. And this is what he declares about that time. Listen to this story. I love this. Pastor Brunson says, I was singing my heart song every day. I want to be found worthy to stand before you on that day with no regrets from cowardice, things left undone. And the second half of that verse says, 
to hear you say, well done, my faithful friend. Now enter your reward. Jesus, my joy, you are the prize I'm running for. That was his heart song. It says, and as I repeated this day after day, something took root in me, a simple and basic foundational knowing that Jesus is my reward. Jesus is my reward. Pressing into, he writes, pressing into a fear of God, an eternal perspective and looking to heaven changed me over the months, and it built something in me so that when I was put on trial, I spoke these words before the Turkish judges and media in that courtroom. These are his words. He said this publicly. Blessed am I in court. Blessed am I because for the sake of Jesus, many people have wronged me, have persecuted me, and now I am suffering. Blessed am I because I have been forcibly separated from my wife and children. Blessed am I because I am in prison. I choose willingly to suffer for the sake of Jesus, and by suffering for his sake, I hope to display for everyone his incomparable worth. Thinking this way did not make things easy. Suffering was still painful. I felt grief, intense loneliness, the loss of my family, and I still had feelings of fear. But countering this was a conviction, an insistent voice saying, you cannot run away. There are great and important things at stake. Stand firm. And he ends with this admonition. My friends, start to work on this now. Ask God to put the fear of him in your heart so that you will not depart from him, so that you will not give in to the fear of man. Following Jesus is worth it. I love what Matthew's, uh, and there are these two little parables, one verse long parables in Matthew 13. And I love the one about the parable of the field. You know that parable, don't you? It said that there's a man who finds a treasure buried in a field. And in his joy, he covered it up and sold everything he had and bought the field. He said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds buried treasure in a field. And in his joy, he covers it back up again. And then he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field in his joy. It's worth it. It's worth it. Paul says something similar, sitting in a Roman prison, and he writes these words in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord? So much of our struggles in discipleship begin to be contextualized and put into perspective when we, when we really begin to recognize, again, that Jesus is worth it. So this week, brothers and sisters, I want you to do this. I want you to pray this prayer. Even though you may not feel it, we need to say it in prayer. Jesus, no matter what the cost, you are worth it. You are my treasure. You are my reward. 
we remind ourselves of that and we get a glimpse of that and we're, we need this every Sunday. This is one of the reasons why we come to the, the Lord's table over and over again, Sunday by Sunday, because as we hear, this is my body which is given for you, this is my blood which is shed for you, we hear Jesus saying this, you cost me everything, but I love you and you were worth it. And we're able to respond to him and say, Lord, you gave everything for me. Now I give back everything I have. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices because you are worth it. In your right hand is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, we need to reacquaint ourselves with that reality. And let's begin at the Lord's table with that this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.